Hello, and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. I'm Brandy, and I'm part of the Ridge team here in Morgantown. The past few years have been challenging for all of us. We've experienced many losses and have grown weary. But what have we learned through this trial? Have we stopped to grieve? Can we be better prepared for trials that we may face in the future? Listen as Pastor Tim addresses some of those questions in a talk from Take Time, an encouraging series that will help us slow down and learn what God may be wanting to teach us in the days ahead. No one would have guessed in January of 2020, at the beginning of the new year, that things were going to unfold the way they did, that things in our world would just get a little bit crazy. One month earlier in December of 2019, this new virus had been discovered. And three months later in March, March 11th of 2020, suddenly this thing was declared to be a pandemic and the whole world changed. Suddenly the whole world was in this what I call lockdown mode. Suddenly we were expected to be wearing masks everywhere we went, businesses were closed. Even as a church, we made the decision For good or bad, we made the decision to close our doors. We did not want to be responsible for a super spreader event, and we knew that people could watch online, but it wasn't easy for me. I was speaking to an empty room. No one laughed. And um, it just wasn't easy. And then, of course, school. Suddenly, uh, you know, you weren't able to do your classes in person. Everything was on online. And public gatherings of all kinds were prohibited. And, and suddenly, graduations and proms were either put off for a little bit, or sometimes they were canceled. Sometimes they were done virtually. Weddings. I know people decided not to get married when they were going to. They postponed their wedding or their honeymoon, or in the case of one of my kids, they ended up severely cutting back the list of people that would be invited to attend. And, and it impacted all of us, this, this pandemic, and some of us have suffered worse than others in that you had loved ones maybe that passed away in part due to this. And all of us learn what it is to have Zoom fatigue and now we're, you know, two and a half plus years after this, and um, I think we're tired of it. And some of us are thinking, I can't believe that you're going to spend a few weeks talking about this subject, but I think that there are some lessons that we need to learn, or maybe lessons we did learn, but we quickly forgot as things are getting back to normal. There are things that I think God has wanted to teach us through this. And I think it's important sometimes that we stop and we take some time to learn and to reflect. And for some of us, I think we just need to even take time just to grieve. We went through all of this and we suffered so many things and then all of a sudden things opened back up again. The world seems almost back to normal, but I think things are kind of crazy now and and we haven't stopped to reflect and say, you know, I, I never did fully grieve this thing. I haven't faced this thing. And as I'm talking with people more and more, I I think people are just weary. They're just just tired. And it wasn't just this pandemic. I mean, our whole country's been kind of splintered. In in a positive sense, it's getting easier to decide which side, for me anyway. But our whole country's kind of splintered, and it's hard. And I feel especially bad for those that experienced this during their high school and college years because... I think it's, it's taken such a percentage of, of your life even. You know, when you're my age, you, you've seen things come and go, you know, when you're 45. Okay, maybe 63. 
But you know, we've seen that life kind of comes and goes and there are ups and downs and things get better. But if you're in high school, you lost a couple big years. And the effects of it, they're just now talking about it. There, you know, just last week, a report that indicated that math scores are down and, and people, because they were so used to Zoom and whatever, have, have kind of forgotten how to socialize. And there are all these impacts on our society. And if I were to use one word to describe what I think we've experienced, it's the word loss. There's just a sense of loss. And oftentimes when we experience loss, we turn to the wrong things. We go to the wrong places. Pete Scazzaro wrote about this. He said, our culture routinely interprets our losses as alien invasions that interrupt our normal lives. We numb our pain through denial, blaming, rationalizations, addictions, and avoidance. And I think he's right. So we want to do a short series titled Take Time. And we want to focus on some of the things that we can learn as we move forward and maybe even things that can help us prepare us for whatever might be coming down the road in the days ahead. Um, Today I want to focus though on uh, what I think is the most, I don't know, well-known talk that Jesus ever gave. It's Christians have called it the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to focus today on the first part of his talk, which has been named the Beatitudes. I don't know, Christians love to name everything, so it's, it's the Sermon on the Mount, it's the Beatitudes. Uh, but the reason I wanted to talk about this is as I was reflecting on this whole situation, this past week I read the Beatitudes, and I thought, how refreshing. Jesus was presenting a way of life that was just so counter to the culture, so different, and so encouraging at the same time. And it so applies to our situation that we find ourselves in right now. Let me read verses 1 through 10. As I'm reading it, I want to encourage you just to think about how it might apply to some of the things we've been facing as a society. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we read, When he saw the crowds, Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle or meek are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is there. Now again, this series is titled Take Time, and my takeaway today is this, take time to see things differently. I'm hoping they will pause to reflect on things and maybe evaluate what we're facing through a different lens, something a little bit different. Now, Jesus used a word over and over again. It's the word blessed in our English Bibles. Some of your versions translate it happy. It's a word that's difficult to translate from the Greek language from which the New Testament was written. So, you know, you take the Greek language, you try to... You try to transfer it over to what the English would mean, and and some have landed on happy or blessed, or it could mean fortunate. None of those words captures, though, the heart of it really completely. You'd almost need some extra words to do it. 
A scholar by the name of Vincent notes that the root word from which we get this word blessed means great or rich. It has the idea of prosperous. And so in this particular context, what Jesus is describing is a spiritual prosperity, a richness of soul and heart that we can all experience if we're part of the kingdom of heaven. Of course, Jesus said that's why he came. You know, in the gospel of John, he said, I I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. He came to give us eternal life, but also that we could experience a blessed life, a full life, an abundant life. And I believe it's possible for us to experience a certain prosperity of soul regardless of what we're facing, and that's part of what Jesus was getting in here, into here. See, what's noteworthy about these beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the you know, merciful or those who grieve or whatever. What's interesting about them is that the blessedness or this spiritual prosperity takes place in places you don't expect. I'm not expecting that those who mourn are the ones that are in some kind of blessed place. And so Jesus was introducing something that's really quite remarkable here. And I think it's one of the secrets that we have as Christians. Paul acknowledged this secret. He called it a secret in Philippians. He said, I've learned the secret of being content. Regardless of my circumstances, I know how to get along with plenty and I know how to have want. And then he concluded, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he learned there's a secret involved that when things are going well, we can celebrate Christ. And when things are going poorly, we can celebrate Christ. And we can find life in the midst of whatever we're facing. So let's begin looking at this a little bit more carefully. I'd like to read verses one through three again of Matthew five. And again, we wanna try to apply it to a current situation. Beginning in verse one, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, the poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is there. Now, let me mention first of all, that the gospel writer Matthew seems to have gone out of his way and inspired by the Holy Spirit to deliberately make connections between Jesus and Moses from the Old Testament. You find it throughout the gospel, he was was constantly talking about the two of them, comparing the two of them. You might not see it here in this yet, but you will in a second here. You see, in the Old Testament, Moses, you remember Moses is the one who led the people out of slavery into freedom. And Moses, by the hand of God, performed amazing miracles and wonders, signs, and things like that. And Moses was a teacher of the people. He got God's laws and taught the people. And, and so you got Moses. Well, Moses at one point made this prophecy. He said, someone's going to come after me that's going to be like me, and you better listen to him. And Matthew doesn't want you to miss the connection because this is the one who is like Moses, leading people to freedom. This was the one who would perform miracles. This is the one who was gonna teach the people. He was gonna be the one to introduce a new way. And so this begins in Matthew 5. At the beginning there it says, and Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down and began to teach the people. And I believe that Matthew's readers would have immediately thought of Moses. Because that's what Moses went up on the mountain. And he received from God these laws, the Mosaic, what's called the Mosaic laws, 
to give to the people. Now, these laws in the Old Testament, there were over 600 of them, and they might seem like they were a horrible burden. I mean, there were just so many laws that God gave to the people after Moses had gone up on the mountain, and then he delivered the laws to the people. But they they weren't meant to be oppressive. What they were were, it was the introduction of a new relationship that God was going to have with his people, and God was spelling out, listen, this is what God's people are like. This this is what it means to to be the people of God and to worship the God that I am. I am your father. You are my children. And so it's really laying out a a way of living that was going to set apart this people in a wonderful way. In fact, God said in the Old Testament that people would look at you and they'd marvel at you about your wisdom and your understanding. And they'd say, this is such a blessed people. And It would point people to God. And so that's what Moses did. He was introducing this wonderful way of life. The Old Testament law, it is the way of life. It was the path that you do these things. It wasn't a bunch of to-dos. It was the path of life. You say, you know, it's just, life is better if you stop lying, if you don't cheat, if you don't commit adultery, if you don't murder people. Life is better if you follow these things. Now Jesus comes up on this mountain and he sits down and he begins to teach the people and what was he doing? Well, he was presenting a new way of life. And what he was presenting wasn't prescriptive as much as it was descriptive. Let me explain what I mean. I know when I make a statement like that, people glass over. (laughs) But prescriptive means it's like a bunch of commands you have to do. He's prescribing something, do this, do this. And so... If this were prescriptive, he'd say, be, you know, be pure in heart, be humble, be righteous, whatever. But that's, it's descriptive. He's describing the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. And, of course, that's why Jesus came, apart from dying on the cross, the Bible keeps saying about Jesus, he came introducing the kingdom of heaven. And he's the king. And so you see what he was doing. He's saying, "I'm, I'm God, really. Like in the Old Testament, He would be their God, they'd be the people. Jesus is saying, I'm the king, and this is the kingdom, and this is what it's like. And he's just describing this beautiful picture of what life in the kingdom of heaven is like. And he starts by talking about the poor in spirit. He says, the poor in spirit are blessed because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, poor in spirit, the idea there is that you recognize your spiritual poverty, To be poor in spirit means that you recognize that you have a need. The the word that's used there is a word that's related to the Greek word for a beggar. Now you kind of get the idea. Someone begs for money, they have a need and they're they're relying on someone else to meet that need and, and this is true. We're supposed to be poor in spirit because The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like that. Now, part of what Jesus, I think, was communicating is that that's how you get into the kingdom of heaven. You won't receive eternal life if you don't have a poverty of spirit. If you don't recognize your deep need and realize, I cannot save myself, I've got a spiritual problem, and I'm almost like a beggar, not quite, but almost like a beggar, you say, "I I need this... And when you're poor in spirit, you know, then God's able to, to give that to us simply when we respond to Jesus. When we put our trust in him, we realize we have a spiritual need. We turn to Jesus Christ, who would, was going to die in our place and for our sins and rise again from the dead. We put our trust in him, 
and we receive this life, this spiritual need. We become part of the kingdom of heaven. I want us to recognize, though, that this poor in spirit is the lifestyle of Christians. We go through our whole lives recognizing how much we need our God. And this situation that we've faced, the difficulties that we've been going through should have had the effect, or I hope it had the effect of of causing us to realize that. I'm desperate for you. I need you, God. That is a wonderful place to be. Because in the midst of then whatever you're facing, you you find God and his presence is there regardless of the difficulties you face. All of the difficulties we face could remind us of this wonderful spiritual need where we discover God in in the midst of whatever we're facing here. Jesus went on to say, though, those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. Those who mourn are happy. Those who mourn are spiritually prosperous. The word for mourning here is a word that refers to outward Loud mourning, it's not just a quiet weeping here. It's talking about people that are really mourning. And Jesus said, that's a good place to be. Well, that doesn't seem like it makes sense. Why would that be the case? And the answer is because they're going to be comforted. Now, most of these beatitudes have a present reality and a future reality, and this is one of these examples. In the midst of your mourning, some of us have mourned, some have lost people in the midst of this pandemic, and what did you find in the midst of the pandemic? You found God. I'm subjected to more suffering than most because of my profession. I end up going to more funerals and and being in hospital rooms where people are very, very sick and things like this. And yet I have noticed that there are people who are in the very midst of their mourning, have a a joy that you can't explain. They have a, a quiet confidence in their God, this place of spiritual prosperity. It looks like a contradiction, but it's not. There's a comfort that comes from God in the midst of it that you won't experience unless you're mourning. And you find yourself in mourning. And in the midst of that, you tap into this relationship with Christ. Jesus, of course, came to help us with these things. The stuff we face in this life that's hard. When Jesus began his public ministry early on, he went to his hometown of Nazareth. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which would have been a Saturday, and they handed him the scriptures to read. And the particular scripture reading that day was Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus read it, and then he said something that no one had ever said before in reading it. No one had ever said these words. As soon as he was done, he said these words. Today, these words are fulfilled in your presence. Now, he was claiming that these words applied to him. What did he say, though? As I read them, tell me if they don't sound a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because... The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our Lord's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus came to comfort us, and he's able to do that in the midst of it. Of course, the ultimate comfort is in the future. All the mourning that we go through right now is a reminder of the fact this isn't our home. 
It's a reminder of the fact that one day there'll be no more tears and it'll be wonderful. That's what it's about to be part of the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are those who mourn. You'll be comforted. Well, then Jesus said these words in verse five, the gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. The word gentle here, I prefer the, the translation meek. The word really has this idea of, of being someone who puts up with hardship well, whether it comes from God or your, circ- or I'm sorry, people or your circumstances, maybe from God. In other words, when, when you're mistreated, when someone wrongs you in some way, it's more, it's, it's this meek response. It's not being like a gentle person, it's talking about having a meek response to agitation when somebody wrongs you. It was a word that was used in the Bible to describe, or at least in Greek times, it was a word that was used to describe a, a horse that was wild but had been trained. And so it refers to strength under control. In biblical times, of course, gentleness, meekness, humility, these were despised qualities. And I think they're despised, frankly, in our culture as well. You don't like someone who's meek. You know, you, we look down on people that are humble and meek and gentle and that kind of thing. But, but Jesus said, no, this is a good thing because meekness is strength under control. It's, it's while the horse was wild, there's no productivity coming out of it, all of its energy, but if you could train that horse, suddenly all of that strength can be poured into a good direction and good could come out of it. And that's what Jesus is describing here, a certain meekness toward our circumstances and especially toward people who wrong us. Dr. Vincent explains it this way, As toward God, therefore, meekness accepts his dealings without murmur or resistance as absolutely good and wise. We look at the things that we face in this life and we don't complain about it, we we don't resist it, we, we take it from God, okay, meekness says I receive this from you. As toward man, it accepts opposition, insult, and provocation as God's permitted Ministers, In other words, it recognizes that other people are going to oppose us, they're going to insult us, they're going to provoke us, but we just say it's fine. We accept it as, as part of maybe what God wants to do in our lives. Now, I think this is particularly applicable in our culture today because everybody's so mad. Everybody's just on edge. You know, all kinds of road rage things, all kinds of Karen situations. I hate to say that since that's my wife's name. She's not a Karen, but she's Karen, but it's the world we live in right now and everyone is so provoked. Everybody's got the chip on their shoulder. Everyone's ready to launch out. It's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not how we do it. Jesus said, you know, love your enemies. Do good to those who mistreat you. You don't have to get revenge. Meekness looks at it and says, you know, you're not a nice person, but that's okay. I don't have to treat you the way you're treating me. It's, it's a strength under control. Now, when we face difficulties, hardships, even in a culture, I think we tend to either want to fight it or else we take this meek approach. Even in Jesus' day, there was a group of people called the Zealots, and their approach to their world situation was to take up swords and kill the Romans. 
See, they were, they were under, the, the Israel was under Roman rule at the time, and there were people in the Jewish society who had the perspective that what you need to do is pick up swords and take over. You know, and in fact, one of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot. Most likely he was part of this particular group. But Jesus said, no, if you want to win, be meek. The meek are the ones who inherit the earth. And this is so counterintuitive. Is it true that I don't have to take revenge? Is it true that I don't have to treat you the way you treat me? Can I really turn the other cheek? Now, I'm not suggesting here today, and neither was Jesus, that you don't fight for certain things. I'm not saying that, that you don't stand in the trenches sometimes and you go after things and you fight for certain things. To me, the distinction tends to be, not always, but tends to be, if the offense is against me personally versus some bigger issue that's worth fighting for. But if it's just you insulted me, that's where I say this meekness comes into play. And one day you will win, Jesus says. That's how you win. It's not by fighting, it's by being meek. Then Jesus said in verse six, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed for they will be filled. Those who have this hunger and thirst for what's right. Righteousness could be right living. It's, it's in the Old Testament, it was like the right path. We have a hunger and a thirst for just, just doing things God's way. It says if you do that, you'll be filled. You will be satisfied if, if this is your approach. Now, oftentimes we don't realize this, and people give themselves to the wrong things, especially, I think, when they suffer. What do people do in the midst of the things that they're facing? Well, they escape in various places. They turn to drugs and alcohol, you know. They turn to maybe sex. They turn to pleasures beyond what would be, I mean, pleasure's not bad by itself, but they give themselves to certain things. They, they maybe distract themselves by workaholism or whatever else. We give ourselves to all these other things. And Jesus was laying out a, a different way. There's a joy that comes from just doing God's way. Now, if you are someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, it won't be easy for you. I think of the example of Lot in the Old Testament. He lived in the city of Sodom, and the text, New Testament indicates that his heart just was, just, he hated it. His heart was, was constantly tormented by what happened in the city, and this will happen to us. I look at it now. I see things in our culture. I'm, I am tormented by those things. But in a personal sense, there's something about choosing the right path that's life-giving as opposed to choosing the wrong path. And even people who don't know Christ kind of know this, you know? Over the years, I've heard people talking like, oh, I got drunk last night. They were just so proud of it. And I said, well, how did that work for you? I mean, how'd you feel the next day? Was it a good thing? Was it a, is that the life-giving way, really? I mean, you're so happy about this thing you gave. Your, we all know. You, we give ourselves to something we know isn't right. It's not life-giving. You're involved with someone you shouldn't be involved with, maybe sexually, and you're, you feel guilty, you feel dirty, perhaps, whatever. It's not the way of life, but living rightly, there's something about it that I think produces joy. Now, when you put your faith in Christ, you're declared righteous by God, and there's a joy that just comes from that. But I think also that there's something uh, about just making the right choices that's life-giving, 
And Jesus said here, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if that's what your hunger and thirst is for, the right things, you will be filled. Dr. Vincent writes about this. The word filled in this verse is very strong. It's a very strong and graphic word originally applied to the feeding and fattening of animals in the stall. To be filled means you get all you want. Don't get to the end of the story where they get killed. But I'm just saying, you're in the stall, you're enjoying, you fill up. And, and you're enjoying this meal and it's wonderful and that's, that's what happens. In the Old Testament, there's a psalm where the psalmist, I believe, was speaking about Jesus and he said these words, Psalm 45, 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. You love what's righteous, you hate what is wicked, therefore God himself has anointed you, has poured this oil of joy upon you. And I'm just saying there's a joy that comes from making right choices. And if we as Christians would realize that, because we go through a lot of suffering for a lot of things, because we don't stop and think, you know, do I really want to do this? Is this the, the way of life? And oftentimes it is not. Jesus then said in verse seven, the merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy. Scholar by the name of Frederick defines what it means to be merciful. Mercy is to have compassion, pity, deep empathy, expresses having deep compassion. The verb is similar to what is expressed in modern language as feeling in what's gut or heart of deep empathy for another person. Blessed are those who are merciful when they see a need. Dr. Morris explains it this way, the adjective for merciful means those whose bent is to show mercy, not those who engage in an occasional merciful impulse. In other words, what he's saying is that people who are part of Christ's kingdom just have this bend to always be helping. When they see a need, their heart is moved by the suffering around them. And they step in to meet that need. And, and the reason Jesus said that this was such a wonderful thing is that the merciful will experience mercy themselves. Now, I think they get it from God, partly. There are a lot of verses that talk about that. When you care about the poor, God will care about you. I mean, he'll take care of you in that sense. And you'll experience his kindness and mercy because you extend it to other people. But also, I think just in a very real sense, when you're merciful, that kind of person, people show you mercy when you need it. And when you're hard and you're not inclined to show mercy, people remember that. And I've seen so many examples of this where somebody was just so hard and unloving and so unmerciful and then they found themselves in this vulnerable position where they needed some kindness or mercy or forgiveness from someone else and nobody extended it to them because they didn't extend it to others. And there's a kind of a cause and effect relationship that takes place here. That when, when we extend mercy to others, we receive it ourselves. And Jesus said in verse eight, the pure in heart are blessed for they will see God. The pure in heart are blessed, they will see God. Now, the purity here could have the idea of being kind of pure in, in terms of sin or whatever else, but more likely, the idea here is a single focus toward God. It's wholehearted devotion to God. Pure in your love for, desire for, 
pursuit of God. That's what I think this word means. They're not being double-minded. And of course, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of promises about this. Those who seek God will find him if they seek him with all their heart. And so you say, I really want to know you, God. Well, I think there's a purity of devotion that results in that. Now, I think right living touches on this just a little bit. In Psalm 24, 3 and 4, many feel that this passage is, Jesus is referring to Psalm 24, 3 and 4, where the question is raised, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not set his mind on what is false. It's describing just coming, purity, you know, the, the idea is that of an animal that you'd offer as a sacrifice. And so we come before our God with this purity of heart, a holy devotion to him. And then Jesus added these words in Matthew 5 and verse 9. He said, the peacemakers are blessed for they will be called sons of God. This point, again, is especially relevant today. Peacemakers, there aren't a lot of them out there. And it's not, by the way, peacekeepers, it's peacemakers. You say, what's the difference? Well, a peacekeeper implies there's already some peace and you're just trying to keep the peace. Peacekeeping may not involve actually real peace. It just means you're not fighting. But peacemakers are people that pursue peace, seek peace. They pursue it, as Peter wrote about, that, that, that God reveals himself to those who seek peace and pursue it. And why does this one matter? Why are they called sons of God or children of God if they're peacemakers? Why are they blessed and called children or sons of God? Well, it's because our God is a God of reconciliation. That's the nature of our God. He's about reconciling. And we're, we're to be about it as well. It doesn't always work though. Sometimes we'll pursue peace and the other person won't allow us to be a peacemaker, which brings us to the last thing that Jesus said in this little beatitude section. He said, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's just acknowledging that as Christians, we're gonna be persecuted sometime. Sometimes, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, how all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We shouldn't be su surprised by that. We pursue peace. But sometimes we'll be despised. My main takeaway today, though, is this, that we need to take the time to see things differently. I want to encourage you this week to read those Beatitudes just by yourself and ask how they would apply to your life. What I'm asking us to do is to choose life, choose the prosperous way to go. It is good to be poor in spirit. You, you want to see God? It's the, those who are poor in spirit. They become part of the kingdom of heaven. It's good to mourn because our God is right there to mourn with us and to help us. It's good to be gentle and meek. That one's hard because we think if I don't fight this, you know, no. Listen, if you don't fight it, God does. See, that's the thing. Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, don't seek revenge, for vengeance is mine. I will repay. So leave room, even. Paul said, leave room for the wrath of God. You either take it or you let God take it for you. And that's what we choose to do. Let God take it. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Show mercy to other people. That's part of what we do as a church here. This kindness campaign that's coming up. We just want to be showing kindness and mercy and have a purity of heart that says, I want to be fully devoted to you. And then we pursue being peacemakers. And if you suffer in the meantime, you'll be blessed. In fact, those who are righteous who suffer 
I think have a special role in the millennial kingdom. I don't want to get into that, but you, to the degree you suffer with Christ, you'll rule with Christ. There's a direct correlation between those two. But I encourage you to reflect on all of this uh, this coming week and how this might apply to your circumstances. Let's pray. Father, um, your, whole, your whole way is so different than this world. And we want to thank you that you've laid out the path of life so that we might walk in it and find life in it, Lord. We're just so grateful that you, you've set us free from this world that we might walk in a different way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.